We are once again opening up to the book of Isaiah. Pastors Ricky and Chris have gone doing a just really great job in my absence preaching through several chapters. We find ourselves in chapter 48, and if you haven't noticed, I'm wearing a jacket. Ricky started, Chris picked up, I'm like, I, so, yeah, I told him I'm either wearing a t-shirt ripped just for fun or a jacket, so I wore the jacket. Uh, we're in chapter 48 today. We're going to take a break when we get to chapter 55. That's the second section, as you know, um, around Easter. We're going to be studying the book of Colossians together. So be reading that book as we look through, uh, as we go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Colossians. That'll take us into the summer. We'll wrap up Isaiah, and then we'll be in the fall, September, probably one of the uh, accounts of the gospel. So with that, Isaiah chapter 48 is where we are. As a way of reminder, remember Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God. He's the prophet of God. He's been revealing to God's people that because of their rebellion, they're going to be sent into exile, Judah, the southern kingdom. Jerusalem will be destroyed. God's people will be captured and then exiled to Babylon. If you remember too, Isaiah is speaking to God's people in the 8th century, but he's speaking directly to them, but he's looking forward to the 6th century when that takes place. And because God is sovereign, he's all-knowing, none of his plans will be thwarted for any reason. All that he said will come to pass has come to pass. 605, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon uh, invades Jerusalem, deports the royal family. 597, he deports 7,000 mighty men. Then 586, 587, Babylon, the world power at that time, conquers and destroys Jerusalem and just burns down the temple. As we know from history, 539 B.C., the Persian army takes out Babylon under King Cyrus. He conquers Babylon, and they become the world power. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you know that God puts it on the heart of Cyrus the king. No surprise. He's been talking about it for centuries to let God's people leave Babylon and head back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall. That's kind of like the bird's eye view of the historical work of God over his people from, as I say, the 8th century to the 6th century. But what we have been reading since chapter 40 through chapter 48 is really what's been taking place on the ground. The why that God is doing what he's doing, the rebellion of God's people, the idolatry of God's people. And just like God, if you remember from chapters 1 through 39, used the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian army, to chastise the northern kingdom, Israel, because of their covenant-breaking rebellion, he raised up Babylon to chastise Judah for their rebellion and their idolatry. And just like God used the Assyrian nation to chastise the northern kingdom and then discipline them, He's going to raise up, he has raised up Babylon to to discipline the southern kingdom, Judah. And then, as we saw, we've been seeing, he's also going to judge them for it. And throughout this historical narrative, we have seen these, these foreign nations discipline and chastise God's people, and then they are judged for it. You hear this often at King's Chapel, God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases, and yet man is responsible Two truths of Scripture that run parallel throughout all the Bible. He's not manipulating people in a a sinful, cynical way. He's working out that which will most effectively serve his good, wise, and holy purposes. And yet throughout all this discipline, chastisement, even the judgment against the nation, 
God has been revealing himself not only as the Holy One of Israel, but a God who loves his people. God who redeems his people. God who calls a people to himself. There is a remnant that God will call out of this darkness to the marvelous light of his kingdom. They are precious. I think it was chapter 46 or 47, Pastor Ricky preached on. They are precious in his sight. That's why we call this the gospel according to Isaiah. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he reminds us that you, you were dead in your sins. You lived with passion, not for God, but for your own desires. By nature, you're children of wrath. But then it was God in his great mercy, who's rich in mercy, of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, he made us alive, been born again with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He says, he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that in love, He predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of our will, no. According to the purpose of his will, Ephesians tells us, to the praise of his glorious grace. Mark that because we'll look at that today. His will, his glorious grace. In him, Christ, we have redemption through the blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We must always remember that We're going to see this today, that within the sovereignty of God, overseeing all things, in the providence of God, working all things out, even in the work of salvation, God is working for his own glory. He will crush all idols. He will show them not only as futile, but as Pastor Chris mentioned, burdensome. They'll never accomplish what they promised. They will never satisfy the heart. They only burden the heart. Last week, again, chapter 47, Chris pointed out, Pastor Chris pointed out that God's going to dethrone Babylon. They think they, they're all that. That they're, that, that they're the deity of, of the world. But God's going to change all that. Israel's redeemer, the Lord host, uh, uh, the Holy One of Israel is going to judge them. Their, their role that they played in the sovereignty of God's hand is coming to an end. And they'll be judged for their wickedness against God's people. The reign of terror will come to an end. And they'll be accountable for treating God's people the way they did. They elevated themselves really to divine status. And anyone who does that will be judged. It's blasphemy. There's only one God. As we get to chapter 48, I wish we could say, wow, God is doing all that. Wow, God's people really learned their lesson, man. They are walking a straight and narrow road of obedience and surrender to a great God like that. Nope. <laughs> we could say the same thing about us, can't we? Chapter 48 is broken into three sections. Look in your Bibles, chapter 48. Each section begins with God reminding his people that he is a God who speaks. And they should listen. Chapter 48, verse 1. Hear this, house of Jacob. Chapter 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob. Chapter 48, verse 17. Thus saith the Lord. Three simple outlines. Am I moving forward? No. There's something wrong with this. this, uh, Can you put the outline up for me? Please. All right. 
So this is where we're at. I'm going to give this to my dear brother here. See if you can. Oh, you know, I'm reconnecting. Let's see. God's glory, our benefit. Number one, we'll see God's glory is purpose in all that he does. God's glory is purpose. All that God does is for the purpose of his glory. Okay? Number one. Number two. Whoop, now it's really working. <laughs> Go back. Yeah, one more. God's glory is revealed in his work of salvation. Yeah, thanks, brother. God's work is revealed. God's glory is revealed in the work of salvation. God's glory is declared with joy to all the nations. That's where we'll end up, okay? So that's where we're at. Turn your Bibles, chapter 41, uh, chapter 48, verses 1 through 11. God's glory is purposed in all that he does. I'll hear, you, hear now the word of God, reading from the ESV. Uh, chapter 48 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. <laughs> it's not applicable, right? Okay. I declare them to you from old. Before they come to pass, I announce them to you. Lest you should say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard now. See all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew that. I knew them. You have never heard. You have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously. And that from birth you were called a rebel. Verse 9. For my name's sake, I deferred my anger. For my sake of my praise, I restrained it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. In many ways, chapter 48 really wraps up chapters 40 through 47. A climax of all that God has been, all that God has been saying through Isaiah, declaring God's superiority over the pagans, idols worship, uh, the reality that God is really sovereign over the world. We see that. He declares what will come to pass. His, his plans will not be prevented. The exiled of God's people who are living in Babylon will return to Judah. And as they do, it will prove to the world that God is sovereign. That he is omnipotent over all the world, has all power. He has all the right and all authority to govern all things, everything, all things in the universe toward his own wise, holy purposes. Yes, even the sinful actions are in the hands of God. And verses 1 through 5 simply reiterates the revelation that God in the past has said things, foretold the future, so that as the events take place, 
They really happen. People will come and recognize that he alone is the one true God. He said it. He brought it to pass. Verses 6 through 8 speaks of new things that are going to happen. Because he alone is the creator and sovereign. And when he speaks, he can make it happen. And all of this, unfortunately, fell on deaf ears. No matter how much God keeps saying and God keeps doing, it falls on deaf ears. Parents, you ever sit your child down and just like, got it? Yes, clear. Clean your room. Pick up everything off the floor. Got it. And our grandson just gets totally like, just starts doing something else. <laughs> Teachers go experience that I'm sure in school as well. Right? You might as well be just speaking to a wall. Uh, over and over in chapter 48, if you, if you look and you see the, the whole chapter, there, there's a lot of words that are associated with the, words, with, with the word like to listen, hear, pay attention. Chapter 48 is, God, is the end of this rope of, of chapter 40 through 47, and God is saying, wake up. Grab your attention. Wake up from your stupor. Wake up and pay attention to what God is saying. And maybe you're here this morning, and, and you need to hear that. You've been coming, you've been listening, but you know what? It's just going through. It's just going through. And now today, God's saying, pay attention. I'm going to speaking. Are you, are you ready this morning to hear a word from the Lord? Are you ready? In fact, the word, uh, the Hebrew word, the verb in verse 1 here, uh, its root word also appears throughout chapter 48, I think 10 or 11 times. It implies not only listening, because, you know, yeah, I got you, uh, but actually it, it, it implies taking action, responding to the word that has been declared. That's why when we're done preaching here, Pastor Ricky will come up and lead us in response. And you should stay if you can, unless there's an emergency, because it's time to respond to the word preached. Here. Why? Because the living God is speaking. Think about that for a minute. God, the creator of the universe, here now is speaking through his prophet, but now he's speaking through his word that we should listen if God talks. Isaiah says here, listen. And then he goes on this litany of of ways he's just identifying God's people. O house of Jacob, notice in verse 1, called by the name of Israel, from the waters of Judah, swear by the name of the Lord, confess the God of Israel, and and all this speaks of the origins of God's people, right? Their identity, their commitment to God, their relationship, their, their covenant privilege. House of Jacob, one of the tribes of Jacob, right? They belong to the 12 tribes of Jacob, house of Jacob. Called by the name of Israel. It talks about the covenant community of God's people. The privilege they had. Come from the waters of Judah is a metaphor that that is reminding God's people that they are like a spring and a fountain flowing with with water. It's like a parent. You know, like I I gave you birth. and I I, I care for you. I, I clothe you. I fed you all these years. I nurtured you all your life. Like, listen to me. But the saddest part of this all, it says they confessed the God of Israel. But look what it says. Not in truth or righteousness. God says, look, your lips may say one thing, but your heart is far from me. 
And even though, verse 3, God declared what was to happen and made it happen, they could look back, whether, whether or not the 8th century people are hearing this, they know the Assyrians and what happened with that, or the 6th century now is opening up the scroll, is, is seeing all that has happened. Like, I've made this happen. They still not and did not heed God's word. And he says, I did all this knowing. Look at verse 4. I did it all, and I know that you are obstinate. And your neck like, is made of iron. Your forehead hard as brass. And I'm thinking, how dare God just expose me like that in Scripture? Hard-headed, right? Isaiah goes on to say that God has revealed himself in what has taken place so that they would not give credence to idols. Verse 5. I did this. Listen, you're hard-headed, but I, I don't want you to say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. Do you realize that God is not obligated to reveal himself and give us his word. God is not obligated to speak to us, to reveal what he's doing, and then accomplish it. It's a matter of grace. For you this morning, that God keeps his promises. It is, 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 and the reason for that is that we're hard-headed, and that God wants to see grace and see him. And have mercy. We shouldn't take it for granted. This book. God has spoken to us. Verses 6 through 8, he speaks of new things. Things that have been hidden. That, 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 that will be done. And he says this, well, I don't want you to rebellious, rebelliously say, yeah, I knew. Look at 7b. I knew that was going to happen. See, what, what happens when we say, yeah, we know. Right? We, we know. We, we, we live independently, right? We just, we, we, we have all the knowledge we, we, we need. And if we could just know all the things that are going to take place, what are we doing? We are, we are dependent upon ourselves, and we are not dependent upon him. So we think anyway. I don't need God. I know what's going to happen. But God says, I reveal and I, I fulfill the future. I want it to bring you to the place of trusting me. If we say we know, we know better. It's just another form of idolatry. God has revealed himself in what he said and accomplished and also revealed himself in the things in the future that he will do so that we are free from idols and we are trusting and resting and dependent upon him alone. Do you know that God is a jealous God? The word tells us. Not the creepy, stalking, jealousy God. Right? We get jealous sometimes, sinfully. We can get jealous righteously, but we get sometimes jealous because someone has something we want. Someone has some looks, some skills, you know, some ability, uh, something maybe uh, material. And you know what? We want that. We become envious. We become jealous because we want something that's not ours, that belongs to someone else. That's not the kind of jealousy. There's nothing God doesn't own. God gets jealous when the things that he has and he deserves, like honor and worship and glory and, and, and obedience, that goes to someone else. That's a righteous 
jealousy. God is possessive of the worship and service that belongs to him. And the best analogy that we could see in all that, I think for us, which would be a righteous jealousy for us, is if a husband or a wife saw someone acting inappropriate toward their spouse, they would be righteously not happy with that. God has brought us together, has given us to one another, and therefore we are jealous over that relationship in a good way, and you should be. Worship, glory, praise, obedience belong to God alone. He is worthy of it all. Therefore, God is rightly jealous when it goes to someone else. All this to say that God has fulfilled all his plans and his promises to his people. He has declared more grace and more precious promises in the future. And God is speaking and his people must realize and acknowledge the folly of idolatry and believe that he alone is deserving of all worship and praise. He has spoken the truth concerning the events to come and he has fulfilled it all so that we will rest and trust in him alone. Not only, not only Cyrus, who is going to take over Babylon and set the people free, but we will soon see in the next few chapters the God's promise of the suffering servant. Now, in verses 9 through 11, let's focus there for a minute. 9 through 11, let's see if that works. Okay. Um, God jealousy for his own glory is now on perfect, uh, is being completely declared. He, he, he puts up with the stubborn people like you and I, stiff neck, he is patient, look what it says, for his own name's sake, for his own glory, verse nine, for my name's sake, I defer my anger, for my name's sake, I defer my anger, for the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Now, although the context is the discipline and exile of God's people, ultimately, that context points to the cross, to the gospel, where the wrath of God, the anger of God, is not deferred any longer, but poured out on our substitute. His name is Jesus the Christ. And that work of salvation is for the praise of God. Even the sanctifying process, the refining process, the discipline and chastising process, look what it says, in the furnace of affliction, in the furnace of affliction, not destruction, stripping away idols, is all done for his own sake, for his glory, and for his purposes. And when this says here, look at the text in verse 9. Verse 10, refined through, though not as silver. In other words, he's refining us through the fire, the furnace of the chastisement. He's speaking to the people there in, in, in Babylon um, who've been disciplined and put there, but he's speaking to us as well. He says, but not as silver. You know what he's saying? He's saying when silver is refined, it gets rid of all the unpure uh, dross, they call it, all the unpure stuff out of the silver until it's pure. He says, if I did that so there's nothing left but purity with you, there would be nothing left. So though he brings his people through trials, there's a limit, he says. They're never treated as they deserve and always for the fulfillment of his purposes and for his sake, for his what? Glory. I think I mentioned this before, maybe it was way back when, but Pastor Ricky um, you know, if you've been in King's Chapel any amount of time, 
careful on the songs he chooses. They've got to be gospel-centered. You know, we sing gospel-centered music, theologically sound music. Um, there's one song that we won't sing here at King's Chapel. Well, there are a lot of songs we won't sing here at King's Chapel, right? Uh, but one of them that we talk about and we kid around about, and maybe you know the chorus. It goes like this. You don't have to sing it out loud. It's okay. I'll do it. Which one? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Crucified. Laid behind a stone. You live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose. So nice, right? Trampled on the ground. Oh, you took the fall. You thought of me above all. No. That's why we don't sing that song. Up to that last part, all's good. He did not do it for us above all. Yes, he saves sinners. Yes, he forgives sinners. Yes, he reconciles sinners to God. Jesus Christ died, justified us. We escape the wrath we deserve, but ultimately and decisively, God's salvation is for the praise of his own glory. All over scripture. Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. It is the passion for his glory that sent Christ to Calvary. And therefore, it was for the sake of his glory that any of us might be delivered from glorifying idols. When God reveals his beauty, when God reveals his perfections, when God reveals his infinite value, his immeasurable worth that he has in himself, he is declaring who he is. And the benefit is our salvation and our joy. The work of God in our salvation enables us to behold his glory. I'll say it again. The work of God in our salvation enables us to behold his glory. God alone will receive glory in our salvation. Salvation is a manifestation of his glory, his omnipotence, his, his mercy, his love, his holiness, all summed up in his glory. Their attributes are on display in the gospel. If God loves you, if God loves me in the way in which the scripture declares he does, and he does, he would only give us what's best for us. And what's best for us is himself. Demanding our praise, demanding we bring him glory is the most loving thing God can do. He's after us. His glory, our joy. And when God reveals himself to us, which is most satisfying, valuable, and praiseworthy, and demands that we worship him, and we praise him, and we give him glory, it is the fulfillment of the heart, the deepest longing that brings joy to completion, as C.S. Lewis would say. But because of the fall, because of, of our rebellion against God, we placed other things, and we worship, and we glorify other things. Even good things, as we say here often, become idle things. When it becomes decisive and crucial and central in our lives, it becomes idolatry. Glory, joy, and satisfaction in God alone. And the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the value and the worth is most visibly seen in the gospel. Christ, who is God, is the divine display of the infinite intrinsic glory that God has in himself. Let me say it again. Christ, who is God, is the divine display of the infinite and intrinsic glory that God alone has. 
The work of Christ, his substitutionary, wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, the gospel, is designed by God to reveal his glory, the preeminence, the prominence, the infinite worth of God. All things done for his glory. So let me end this point, which is the longest point, but let me end it with this question. You guys could talk about it in community groups. What would life be like for you what would trials and difficulties be like for you and me if we really listened, heard, embraced, and accepted and responded knowing that God is doing all things in our lives for our chief goal, and that is the promotion of his glory? What would life be like for us if all that we're going through is for his glory. We could talk about it in community groups. Number two, God's glory is revealed in the work of salvation. Verses 12 through 16, hear the word. Listen to me, O Jacob. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundations of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call on them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and Listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, he's talking about Cyrus, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, God says. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Same verb, chapter 12, uh, excuse me, chapter 48, verse 1 and verse 12. Listen, respond, uh, 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 appropriately respond by obedience. But notice the tone is a little bit different. In Isaiah chapter 48, verses, uh, verse 1, he's identifying, saying, These, this is who you are in contrast to what you say and what you believe, right? Your heart's not really there. Here, though, in chapter uh, 48, verse 12, he's saying, I'm the one who called you. Notice what he says there. Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. In other words, I'm doing this. All that you are, all that you have become, all the calling out of darkness to light is because of me. I've done that. Right? That's what he's saying. And then he, he reminds them again, we've seen this over and over, of his utter uniqueness, right? His otherness. That God is holy, separate. He cannot share his glory with another because he is other than anything ever created. That's why he won't share his glory. Right? He's not going to share. You know, that's why, let me quick side note. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible says that love is what? Not envious and does not boast. For human beings to be envious and boastful is not love. But for God, it is. He's jealous. He's boasting of his glory because that's what's best for us. Okay? I am, he says, unchangeable, self-existent one. From the beginning, I have all things in control. I will be there in the beginning. I will be there in the end. I am he, the first and the last. Right? I don't, I don't need help to exist. I will accomplish what I will accomplish. He established the earth with his right hand, spread out the heavens. He summoned them. Stand up, he says in verse 13. They'll stand up at his call. Verse 14, he says, let's come together. Look at, look at verse 14. Assemble all of you. He's talking about the Jewish people. 
God's people, assemble all of you and listen. There we go again. What are we to listen to? What, what are you trying to say? Look at the next verse. Who among them has declared these things? What he's saying is people gather together. Who among these idols have done what I've done? That's what he's saying. I'm the sovereign one. I'm the reigning ruling one over the world. I'm the one that called Cyrus to become king over the Babylonian or the Chaldeans or Persia at that time. But I will call him. Look what he says. He even says the Lord loves him. God loves him. God will will love to use Cyrus to fulfill his purposes, to conquer Babylon, to set God's people free. I, verse 15, even I have spoken and called him. I'm the one that brought him. He will prosper in his way because of me. God will use Cyrus because God works all things together for the counsel of his will. Nothing, I mean, think about if you were those people, nothing happened to Israel that was not outside God's control. He began all things, he will end all things. Do you believe that this morning? Do you rest in that this morning? Are you trusting in that this morning? All the small G gods that Israel's ran to and Israel worshiped, they bowed down to in their shame, doesn't minutely compare to the true and living sovereign God. He is absolutely unique. Why uh, uh, unique? Why would not listen to him? And that's for us this morning. Why would, why would we question God's word, why would we question God's perfect will for us according to Scripture? Why would we not just follow him and do as he says as an act of love and obedience to him after all he has done in our salvation? That's what he's saying. Verse 16, draw near to me. Hear this again. From the beginning I have not spoken to secrets. Ain't nothing y'all should not know. From the time it came to be, I, I have been there. Now, it, Verse 16, the first part is pretty clear. God says, you know, I'm not the one who hides. I reveal myself to you. He has spoken. He's making himself available through his word and through his prophet. The question in chapter 48, verse 16, is that last part of verse 16. Look at it with me. All of a sudden, at the last verse, he says, and now, and now, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Sends commentators on a, on a, on a, on a, on a tizzy. Who's he talking to? And now the Lord, draw near to me, and now the Lord sent me and his spirit. Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I, I ta- we talked about Isaiah chapters 1 through 39. Chapter 1 through 39, one of the main themes of that, one of the big themes of that is king, that Jesus is king. We saw the birth of a child. We saw that the king will, will come and reign and rule in righteousness. Chapter 7, chapter 9. All this is about the king. And the king that Isaiah is talking about in chapters 1 through 39, we know is Jesus. Well, in chapters 40 through 55, as I mentioned before, one of the themes is the servant of the Lord. We'll see four unique passages of scripture. We saw one in chapter 42. We'll see one next week where God is talking about to the people of, uh, uh, in Israel and to us today that the servant of the Lord will come. We'll see the suffering servant in end of chapter 52 into chapter 53. The servant of the Lord. Turn, if you can, just a couple of pages, chapter 42. Remember, Jesus said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And we know that Isaiah is talking about Jesus as the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of the Lord. But look what it says about Jesus in chapter 42, verse 1. God introduces to us this servant of the Lord. He says this in chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, 
my chosen, in whom what? My soul delights. Remember the voice came from heaven. He's my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Jesus, he says, I have put my spirit upon him and he will go and what? Bring forth justice to the nations. Here's what Isaiah is doing. He's talking practically and and in that moment about Cyrus. But he's looking beyond Cyrus. He's looking beyond Cyrus to the perfect king conqueror, true Messiah, who is empowered with the Spirit, and now the Lord God has sent me, and we'll see it next chapter, next verse, excuse me, next chapter, we'll see this. He has sent me and his Spirit. Salvation for God's people was accomplished by God through the instrument he used, Cyrus. He set them free. He redeemed them from bondage. Cyrus was permitted by God to let his people go back, but this is really important. Cyrus gave them no spiritual victory, no true and everlasting peace. He did not reconcile them to a holy God. But the time is coming. The the fullness of time is coming. Isaiah is saying that eternal life will appear upon the earth and God and God's people will experience true and final redemption. For God will send forth his son, the servant of the Lord. By his spirit, he will accomplish redemption. In no comparison to any human king. Not for a moment. It's a constant reminder that God is still working, that God is still redeeming, that God is still saving, even in the midst of this broken down world. In the face of weakness, in the face of rebellion, God does not say, I give up. He intervenes in an astonishing manner by sending the Spirit the servant of the Lord, a spirit-empowered servant of the Lord on a mission for salvation. Now, let's get a little personal. If that's true, and it is, and God has given us his word, and he has, and his word has been declared, things that he said was going to happen, you see within the historical uh, uh, context, it has come to pass. There are new things yet to come. We can trust him. It's written in the book of Revelation and other places. The Bible says that he's spoken in many ways to the prophets of old, but finally and ultimately he's spoken through who? Jesus. Hebrews tells us he's appointed Jesus as the heir of all things. Through him he created all the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe, how? By the word of his power after making purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God has kept his promises. God has made and kept multiple promises. And in particular, the greatest promise he's made from Genesis to the cross. And God says, will you trust We can leave the Babylons of our lives that enslave us. We can be delivered from the guilt and shame of our past sins. Jesus Christ, by his spirit, has made a way for us. Listen, if there's ever a new thing that was coming that we should pay attention to, it's the coming of Christ. If there's ever a repeated message not spoken in secret but publicly made, it's 
the gospel of Christ. If there was ever a time when God has been there, it is the incarnation in Christ. It's no surprise. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus comes publicly on the scene in Galilee, proclaiming the gospel. The time is fulfilled. Family, this is for you this morning. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means to turn and believe the gospel. It's, it's not a suggestion to ponder this morning. It's not advice to consider. It is a good news that's been revealed to believe and to trust with our whole heart. God wants, listen this morning, God wants to be to you and to me a rock of refuge, a a redeemer who rescues us from sin and death. The price and the payment to rescue us was accomplished with Jesus. He died in our place. He bore the judgment and wrath so we don't have to. It fell on him and now God is able to forgive. He's able to accept if you respond and believe. And he does all of this, as we said, for his own sake and for his own glory. God has revealed his glory in the person of Christ. It would not be good news if we, not see, if we did not see the beauty of Christ in the gospel. It would not be glorious news if we did not see the love and the forgiveness and the goodness and the justice and the righteousness of God in the gospel. So the issue is the same for them and for us. Will we believe it? Will we listen? Will you, will you see the love of God? Will you see the glory of God in the gospel? I hope you do. God's glory is purposed in all that he does. God's glory is revealed in our salvation. And finally, God's glory is declared with joy to all the nations. And we'll read with me chapter 48 again, verses 17 through 22. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I'm the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out, verse 20, from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them from the rock. Talk about the Exodus. And split the rock in the water and gushed out. There is no peace, verse 22, says the Lord, for the wicked. Again, this functions as a conclusion to all the chapters from 40 through 48. Declaring to us how the suffering of the exiles will not bring about the final salvation, but the work of Christ and the servant of the Lord will. Because this really, he identifies himself, look what he says, as the Redeemer. So let's talk, about, let's talk about for a minute just the context in which we find himself in. Did you know that Isaiah mentions, let me see how many times I wrote it down. The Lord, yeah, identifies himself as Israel's redeemer. Um, let me see how many times. I think it was 11 times. And, and that word redeemer uh, is used when a person is, uh, uh, steps in. And, and really sets them free. They, they take on the obligation uh, of someone who's in a legal trouble, a financial trouble. It's even spoken of as a redeemer when someone uh, avenges the, uh, bloodshed in the family and takes on to avenge that bloodshed. 
like the next of king. So God is saying, listen, you're the next of king. You're in covenant relationship with me. All the needs that you have to be set free, I will take upon myself. He uses it in Exodus 6, how God will redeem God's people out of the burdens of Egyptians. I will, I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with my outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. It's just, it's just we're in covenant, and I'm going to redeem you. I'm, gonna, I'm the next of king. I'm going to buy you back, Okay? But what's interesting is that, let's see, Lord could redeem it ten times. I wrote it here. Six times in the book of Isaiah, the word redeemer, the buying back, the kinsman redeemer, six times in the book of Isaiah, it's mentioned alongside the Holy One of Israel, right here in that text. The Holy One of Israel. Right? This is what Motir says in his commentary. He says this. This is interesting. He says, the Holy One should draw near to the next of king, the Redeemer, is a truly overwhelming display of grace and condescension. He continues, whatever burden he takes from them, the Redeemer, God the Holy One, and loads on to himself, he still remains the Holy One. Sooner or later... The disparity between his holiness and their unworthy sinfulness, the ones he buys back, must be taken into account. Do you see what he's saying? If God is the Holy One who is perfect and just, spotless, no darkness in him at all, no evil at all, and yet he redeems and takes on the burdens and the sins and the brokenness of people, we've got to reconcile those two. How can they both be together as Redeemer and as the Holy One of Israel? How can you be separate from sin and then yet take on sin? When Jesus walked the earth, we know that when he met men, women who have leprosy, he would touch them. We know in Mark chapter 5 that there was a woman of, of, of a blood disorder and she touched his garment. By all Jewish standard, the unclean, the blood disorder, the leprosy, the unclean, when they touch something, that thing which is clean becomes unclean. It's the way it works. In fact, Jesus should have been told, go. Go to the temple for your cleansing. You touch the blood. You touch the uh, leprosy. You are now unclean, unfit for the community and worship. But that's not what happened. You see, divine holiness... The Holy One of Israel is not defiled by touching that which is unclean, but rather divine holiness imparts cleansing. Okay? Only God can be both holy, separate from sin, and yet take on himself the uncleanliness of our sins. How does he do it? He's the Redeemer. How does he do it? The Lamb of God. How does he do it? He lives a perfect life, and he dies in our place. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And watch this. Look at the text. When we understand that, he says, what will he do in verse 18? Or 17. I will teach you to profit. When you recognize my redemption, I'll teach you to profit. I'll lead you in the way you should go. In other words, God is saying, I will tell you what's important. I will show you what's, what, what really matters in life. Isn't that what happened to Paul? Paul says, look, whatever I gain in this life, all my riches, all my education, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Philippians 3, everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. I suffer all things. I count them as rubbish so I can gain Christ. Be found in him, not with my own righteousness, but the things I do, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The Redeemer who reveals his glory in the gospel teaches us and leads us to truly treasure that which is most important. That is Christ. That is Christ. Verses 18 and 19, we'll just skip over that really quickly. Just, let me just say, verse 18, 19, it's astonishing. He's like, you know, uh, I, I, he's lamenting. Like, why don't you get this? He's lamenting, like Jesus lamented when he, when he came into Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why can't you get this? Oh, that you paid attention. Jump down to verse 20 and we'll close here. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 really wraps it up. It is, listen, it is announcement. It is announcement of salvation. And it's summarized powerfully. Look at verse 20 and 21. Go out from Babylon, he says. Go out, flee, declare with joy. Throughout this section, God has been challenging his people not only to, to hear the word, but, but to, to, to walk in it, to recognize that the, the pagan conquerors will serve his purposes, but I will redeem. Look at, with me with, uh, look at the imperatives here in verse 20. Go out, that's a command, an imperative. Go out, flee, declare, proclaim, send, say the Lord has redeemed. So those are all imperatives. In other words, don't look back. You've been set free. And that may be true for the exiled people, but listen, tell me, it's finally true in Christ. The greater exodus, the redemption, the, the release from bondage to sin, death, and hell, we are not to look back. We are to move forward. The person and work of Jesus, the true exodus, by his sacrifice, through his substitutionary death on the cross, glorious resurrection from the grave. And let me tell you, when, when, when salvation comes to the heart of, of man and woman and child, there is joy. Go out with joy. Let me ask this question. We'll close right here. Promise. If I said to you, and don't ask, you can talk about this in community groups. If I were to ask you, what is the first word or maybe the first emotion and word that you feel and you want to say when I say to you, tomorrow morning when you go to work, find someone and talk to them about Jesus and repentance and faith. Someone at work, someone at school, someone in your neighborhood. Is the first thing you think is like, joy. <laughs> You're thinking fear, intimidation, can I do it, anxiety. Go out from Babylon, flee, declare with what? A shout of joy. Do you realize that over all over the New Testament, joy is a response to salvation and the sharing of our faith? Though you have seen him, Peter says, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. When the Philippian jailer comes to faith, He's filled with joy. He's rejoicing. Paul, come to my house. Let's share the gospel with my family. Paul tells the Thessalonica church after he shares the gospel with them, a church is birth. He says, you are our glory and our joy. <laughs> we tend to see missions, living on mission with God, declaring and demonstrating the gospel as one of a burden, not of joy. 
but the Bible talks about it as more of a fallout, like this vast explosion that just pours out. It's not lethal, but it what? It gives life. The band could come up and give me one more minute. I'm going to share a story with you. Several years ago, and I got permission for this story. Several years ago, we had an Easter morning. We do baptisms here on Easter. My wife was here with me by the tank. And we shared the gospel. And we had people baptized. And then somebody, you're here. I know you're here. Where are you? Christy, Miss Christine? Snyder's are here. Yeah, I'm talking about you, man. I got permission from your wife. This young brother, Sean, says, it's time. It's time. Stops me in my office, you're baptizing me. He's bigger than me. I'm like, okay, whatever. (laughs) With tears. I'm thinking, I don't want to do that. I don't even, you know, I'm not sure if you understand, but I know him, I know his wife. I said, okay. We're baptizing, and I'm like, well, we have one more. He's slipping off his shoes. You don't want to tell nobody. He's like, I'm making a commitment. He gets up. His wife's still like, where are you going? And my wife is here, and she catches her eye. And when she finally realized, his wife finally realized what's happening, one thing happened. She exploded in tears, right? My wife then, of course, you're crying, so she starts crying. (laughs) Everybody's crying. And down Sean comes, and he's baptized. Have we forgotten the wonder that our sins can be forgiven? Maybe other things have taken greater joy in our lives rather than the glory of God. The infinite worth and value of God in himself through the gospel. Maybe we forgot how sinful we really are and how helpless we really are. That without the grace of God, damnation, judgment, wrath abide. So let's stand together, if we can, and we're going to respond. We're going to respond. That Jesus is all we have. All I have is Christ. I was running. I was hellbound. And then I beheld your grace, your love. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath we deserve. Now use me, Lord. That's the song. So if we're going to respond to this, we're not just going to say the words on the screen. We're going to respond as a church family that, yes, you love me, you died for me, you rose for me, and I am filled with gratitude and joy, and I'm going to go into the world declaring the good news of Jesus, demonstrating it with love and good deeds, and declaring the good news to repent and believe on Jesus so that our joy can be full and God's glory can be manifested. Amen? Father, thank you for... Isaiah 48, and how you wrapped it up here with, with fleeing from darkness, with fleeing from bondage, with fleeing from the things that hold us back, to be set free by the blood of Jesus, to be set free by his sacrifice on the cross, to be set free to love and worship you with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving, filled with inexpressible joy, to help us to leave this place, to give you glory, to make yourself known through the gospel as is declared and demonstrated to the world around us. Help us, Lord, to respond in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' good name, amen.